Hey everyone, today I'm speaking with Dr. James Doty. He is a clinical professor at the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, and he is also the founding father and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University, of which His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor. Dr. Doty works with scientists from a number of disciplines examining the neural basis for compassion and altruism. But Dr. Doty also wrote a book called Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. And that is why I'm talking to him today. And it was an honor to be able to sit down with Dr. Doty and just pick his brain about compassion and stepping into the magic shop. I really think you're going to love this conversation. Uh, if you haven't heard about Dr. Doty, you need to listen to this and then check out his book, Into the Magic Shop. It is it's a life-changing book. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. I, I have probably, well, no, I definitely have read 32 books since last March. Uh, wow. And, well, the, the COVID gave oh. me time. <laughs> Actually, I, I thought you were thinking this March, but you mean, or last this March? March? Oh, okay. No, no, like uh, 2020 year, March. Yeah, right, 2020 right. Okay, March. I, got, I got it. That's... Uh, that seems uh, more possible. The other man, you're reading fast. No, no, no. Well, if you knew me, 32 is is miraculous uh, since last <laughs> March. But of of all the books, um, one of the ones I have enjoyed the most is is Into the Magic Shop. Um, that that is a very powerful powerful book. Um, and so and it, it's neat because to me it well reading your life story and 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 everything you have been through and done. Um, through the lessons you learned from Ruth, it just kind of makes me want to be uh, a better person. Like, it just makes me want to do better. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate that. And that's kind of you to say that. And uh, um, interestingly enough, I had no particular desire to write a book. Uh, in fact, the story behind that is that um, I had been approached many times and always refused. One, because I didn't feel I had enough time. Uh, two, uh, I had never met a, met a literary agent who sort of, I'm not sure if the word trusted is the correct term, but who I felt comfortable with. And uh, what happened was I was in uh, Cape Town in South Africa at uh, Desmond Tutu's 80th birthday. And uh, it was an extraordinary event, as you can imagine. Uh, it spanned over three days. The first day had a, um, a church service. You know, he's the emeritus pastor at St. George's Church. So there, um, the present pastor ha uh, had a uh, church ceremony. Uh, you, uh, our Bono was there, which again was quite amazing. And then uh, the next day, there was a, a book signing party. And his daughter had done a book with a, a journalist. Uh, it's one of those coffee table picture books about his life. And uh, there are about 200 people there. He signed books, of course. And a fellow came up and introduced himself. Uh, and the only reason I remember uh, uh, was because he was tall and a handsome guy, because I met, I mean, literally, you know, tens and tens of people there. And I'm sure like you, you go to an event, a social event like that from people uh, with people from all over and you know in all likelihood you're never going to see them again so it doesn't really stick in your mind uh, and when I got back to California I was giving a lecture at Stanford 
And I looked out in the audience and lo and behold, that same guy was in the audience. And I was like, wow, that's strange. And uh, I meant to talk to him, but I was inundated with people after my lecture. And when I looked up, he was gone. And that happened actually a second time, a month or two later, and uh, gone again. And the third time I ran into him actually was I was hosting an event at my house, um, a book launch party for another friend of mine. And I did not make the guest list. And lo and behold, this guy shows up again. And this time he comes up to me and he introduces himself. He says, you know, we met in Cape Town. Um, I've been following you for three years. Uh, you know, I've listened to all your lectures, your videos. And um, he says, I think you have a powerful message. And I'm a literary agent. And um, I, I wanted to ask you if you'd consider um, doing a book with me. And then he added the, uh, the following sentence, which, uh, you know, I love my father, he's elderly, and has been sick, and I've shown him um, videos of yours, and he was very moved. And I'd love to do this book as a gift to my father. Uh, so, uh, you know, he knew how to sort of manipulate the, me. <laughs> so, that, was, that was a strong sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said, uh, sure. And, you know, imagine I did not Google him. I didn't do anything. I just said, sure. And uh, uh, it turns out he was Tutu's literary agent, as well as Mandela's, uh, as well as Richard Branson's and others. And uh, more recently, um, uh, Jane Goodall. And so a lot of prominent people. So anyway, uh, that led to he and I working together. And we spent about three months outlining the book. And then uh, about a year and a half or so actually writing the book. Uh, so it was a fairly long process. And like I said, I, I didn't really have the time to do it. So what I ended up doing was waking up at five every morning and writing for a couple hours. And uh, this went on for obviously some time. So. Well, you did a phenomenal job. It's a great, like, it's such a wonderful mix of your story, but then you also throw in these scientific just amazing nuggets about the, about how the body works and the way you weave it together. I mean, it, it just kind of hooks you, um, or you just want to, you just want to keep going with it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, um, Again, like I said, I, I never had any desire to write a book. Uh, and once I agreed to it, uh, you know, my feeling was, look, if it can help one person, that's perfectly fine. Uh, but uh, what happened was it became a New York Times bestseller. It's been, uh, it's won numerous awards. It's, uh, uh, a, it's in uh, translated into, I think, 40 languages now. Uh, it's a bestseller in multiple uh, languages or multiple countries, I should say. And uh, and interestingly enough, there's a K-pop band you may have heard of called BTS. Yes. Yeah. So they actually use my book as the basis for their third album, uh, Love Yourself Tear. And there's a song in that album called Magic Shop. And them actually doing that and making that association uh, really pushed sales, uh, not only in South Korea, where it became a number one bestseller, but all over the world, actually. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's quite, and uh, what's even more interesting is uh, I probably can't say the name of the movie star, but there's a very prominent uh, uh, um, 
what is it, uh, A-lister who uh, has actually optioned the rights to the book for a movie. So, oh, uh, wow. so that's sort of in progress at the moment. Now that's exciting. Um, yeah. And I get it because it is, like I said, this is one of the, out of the 32 books I've read, that one, like it, it makes me want to be a better person, like, you know, to reach for more. Um, it's, it's just so neat. Have you, and I'm sure you thought about this in a staggering way, but have you ever, do you ever just get like starstruck by, or just, I know that's not the right word, but just amazed, just knocked off your rocker by the chance that you met Ruth going into that magic shop and, and how, how it impacted your, like, like that had to be like winning the lottery um, five times or something. It's weird. Well, um, it's interesting you say that because people will say to me, well, uh, with your personality and your drive, were you destined anyway uh, to do all the things you've done? And of course, we can never know, but I certainly uh, feel um, that Ruth certainly helped me dramatically and really did uh, set the stage and put me on the path to do what I've done. Uh, and I'm not sure that would have happened without her. Uh, but of course, you never know. Now, the interesting thing is that, and I, I think you may recall it from the book, uh, her grandson was supposed to visit that summer. And what happened was that the parents got uh, their divorce and they got into a fight and uh, the mother refused to send the child. And so, uh, and that's why the grandmother was uh, there, the owners of the magic shop's mother. That's why she was there to be with her grandson. And he was, I think, 10 at the time. And in some ways, you know, I think I substituted uh, for him. No, I, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. Um, but it was, it was beautiful, though, the way that she poured into you every day, every day that you showed up. It's beautiful that you showed up. But well, <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting point because uh, uh, you know, for a 12 year old to agree to that and actually do it is somewhat unusual. Uh, but there were two things. Uh, one is um, she uh, made me feel very safe and uh, I had nothing else to do. And actually there were three things. And the third thing was that uh, she actually uh, was feeding me uh, Chips Ahoy chocolate chip cookies. So those were the motivators uh, uh, for me to show up every day. Well, she knew what she was doing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, can I ask you of the, the four magic tricks that she taught you in the magic shop? Um, the one that I'm most curious about is the one that you came back around to at the end of the book was opening the heart. Can, how do you open the heart? Well, I think... Um... Almost all of us in childhood have been traumatized in some way or another. And you don't have to be poor to be traumatized. Uh, oftentimes, um, your parents' behaviors are a manifestation of the baggage that they carry. And many of us assume that uh, parents are perfect or that they're doing the right thing or they know what's right, et cetera, et cetera and they end up traumatizing us, not necessarily because they intentionally mean to do so, but they don't have the resources, the tools, the insights, et cetera, et cetera. 
And um, so in my own situation, of course, my father was an alcoholic uh, and uh, my mother uh, had had a stroke, was partially paralyzed, chronically depressed. And after this period of time with Ruth, instead of having the anger and hostility and despair and hopelessness, you know, I recognized <clears throat> that their actions really were not about me per se. Uh, they were just having their own struggles, um, trying to assuage their own pain. And that uh, was manifested oftentimes by not acting towards me or my siblings in uh, an appropriate way. Um, and so I didn't have anger about that. So when we talk about opening one's heart, you have to understand what are your drivers uh, and what um, is holding you back from actually uh, having unconditional love for another person. Now, certainly, if it's your sibling uh, or parent or somebody you're close to, that's a lot easier than having unconditional love for maybe a coworker or the person on the street, or even uh, certainly someone who's done harm to you or other people. Uh, but when you look at your own situation and what has hurt you, what causes you pain, of course, it's people who have not demonstrated an open heart towards you. And so if you can sit with that and understand those people's actions, and in some ways, if you will, feel the pain that they have that is causing them uh, to not be so nice oftentimes, uh, then you can reflect on yourself and ask yourself, how would I want to be treated in this particular way? You know, there's a quote that actually is falsely attributed to, um, um, what's his name, uh, Victor Frankl. And the quote is, uh, between stimulus and response, there's a pause, and within that pause lies your freedom. And in some ways, this relates to that, because oftentimes events occur, and we have a tendency to immediately be reactive to those events, especially negative events, and not really think. But if you pause a bit, you go from this reactive response, which is a manifestation of your sympathetic nervous system, to shifting over to your parasympathetic nervous system. Because when your sympathetic nervous system is engaged, this fight, flight, or freeze response, it is putting you in survival mode, and you immediately make a decision but it's not necessarily the right decision. When you're able to shift and be more thoughtful, take a little bit more time, you find you're much more thoughtful and discerning because when your parasympathetic nervous system is engaged, what happens is that those areas in your brain that uh, manifest um, by engagement of your executive control function which gives you access to memories, experiences uh, that you've had in the past, insights, wisdom, then you make a decision that is much more uh, thoughtful. And it's taking that pause, which, you know, for many of us takes several years to develop that uh, um, 
muscle, if you will, or that understanding. So when you're able to pause and think about it, uh, you're much more likely to make the right decision and not be reactive, not be fearful, not be anxious. So uh, I think that's one of the most important lessons each of us can learn. So for the parasympathetic nervous system, along with rest and digest, it's kind of also like the love and compassion system, maybe? Sure. Or you can call it uh, care and concern or a number of adjectives, uh, because in some ways, this should be our baseline. And unfortunately, it's not in modern society. But our DNA hasn't changed in the last 200,000 years. So if you think about it, when we were on the savanna in Africa, uh, and uh, weren't engaged with survival, let's say, and was in a safe space, uh, the parasympathetic nervous system dominated. And the sympathetic nervous system was used uh, for an immediate response to threat. And once that threat was gone, uh, then uh, your uh, various physiologic events that occur when you're stressed and anxious, such as high blood pressure, increased heart rate, diversion of blood from your gastrointestinal tract, your skeletal muscle, your pupils dilating, all of that stuff, which engage you to run away, if you will, or uh, respond to threat, uh, those are only meant to occur very transiently. So they occur, and then you come back down to baseline. Unfortunately, for many people in modern society, that system is chronically engaged, and as a result, has a very deleterious effect on, uh, on us. And uh, uh, and this can be as a result of a depression of your immune system, the production of inflammatory uh, proteins, which are associated with chronic disease states, um, elevated cortisol and stress hormones, which have an effect on your physiology. Also, it stresses your heart. Uh, so there are a whole variety of responses when you're stressed and anxious. But your baseline really is to be calm, to be open, to feel, if you will, safe, especially psychologically safe. And when you're in that position, that's when your physiology works its best. So I'm sure I probably don't fully understand this, but when you were talking about opening the heart in the book, you also went into the really cool uh, uh, facts about the body that the heart kind of has like its own brain and it actually talks to our brain. Sure. So, uh, the autonomic nervous system, uh, which is that system that works um, not necessarily with our input whatsoever, but automatically beneath the radar of our consciousness, uh, is uh, manifested within the vagus nerve. And within that is the sympathetic nervous system fibers and the parasympathetic nervous system fibers. And it's not a one-way street from the brainstem to all the vital organs in the body, especially the heart, but it's a two-way street. So is, there is also a communication uh, between the heart uh, and the brain, of course, and it can have a huge impact on uh, your physiology as well as have an impact on other organs in your body. And those can, that stimulation can come directly from uh, the heart itself. So it is a two-way communication, uh, if you will. Awesome. So along with writing Into the Magic Shop, you've also, you're the founder of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. 
C-Care. Right. Can't, what is C-Care? <laughs> well, you just mentioned it, but it's uh, a uh, center within the School of Medicine at Stanford, which I founded in 2008, and of which the uh, Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor. And um, what happened was I had uh, been uh, involved in various phys- uh, business ventures and had actually left the state um, to actually help a indigent, in, 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 indigent, anyway, a hospital for the poor in Southern Mississippi uh, uh, build a program. And I had left there ultimately and came back to California <clears throat> and uh, came back to Stanford. And when I came back, I was very interested in this topic of what drives people to do good or care for others and what impedes that. And so when I came back, I initially uh, funded the center myself and I gathered some scientists together, primarily psychologists and neuroscientists to have a conversation about this topic and to look up the literature and ultimately actually to have a journal club. And it was interesting in conversations with these individuals the statement or understanding was that if you studied compassion or empathy or altruism, that that study was actually a dead end for you if you wish to advance uh, in an academic environment. Uh, regardless, though, uh, and like many scientists, if someone's paying for the research, you're happy to do the research. Uh, <laughs> and so this began a informal, uh, what we call Project Compassion. And uh, we began some very, fairly simple studies. We did a survey of the literature and it was amazing because very quickly we found that if you will, having an open, and open heart, being compassionate to yourself, being compassionate to others had a huge impact, not only on yourself, but those around you in a rippling effect. And in fact, the Dalai Lama says being compassionate, uh, being compassionate is one of the few times it's okay to be selfish. And what he meant by that was that when you're compassionate and kind to others, you actually receive benefit. And, um, and I think that's uh, very true. So the center was founded in that way. And uh, we ultimately ended up having a number of benefactors, not only the Dalai Lama, but two individuals actually from China. Uh, and I say that because, of course, there's antagonism between uh, the country of China and the Dalai Lama. But each of those individuals uh, donated a million dollars and funded the center initially. And then uh, we set up lecture series for academics uh, to visit and speak who um, were experts in these fields. Uh, we ended up uh, doing a program called Conversations on Compassion where I would sit up on stage with someone who has dedicated their lives, if you will, to compassion, be that a scientist, be it a business person, be it a spiritual or religious person. And um, we also, of course, did uh, a number of research studies and uh, developed different uh, programs and techniques to uh, help individuals be more self-compassionate and compassionate. Uh, and those are now taught uh, all through the world. Uh, actually, we're doing a program right now that has representation from, uh, I think, 80 countries in the world. Um, 
and that's an ongoing program, which I think is backlogged about three years. Um, so it's actually become a fairly uh, extensive program. Uh, Care uh, also published the Oxford University uh, Handbook of Compassion Science, which has become the Bible for this area of study, and I'm the senior editor of that. And then many of the individuals who have been involved in Care, many people who've done um, either sabbaticals with us or were fellows with us uh, for six months to a year have gone on to publish uh, a large amount of literature uh, in this field as well. And so uh, it's had, I think, a huge impact. In fact, now there are over, I think, 50 centers throughout the world who are focused in this area, where when I started it, uh, really, there were people doing some research, but it was very limited. And certainly there were no centers whatsoever focused in these areas. That is, that's amazing. You're like the spearhead for compassion in the world. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I've given talks all over the world about this, and obviously it means a great deal to me. Uh, but I think it is important. And I have always said that uh, it's compassion that will save uh, the world. The other extraordinary thing is <clears throat> through this work, of course, I met the Dalai Lama and ultimately became the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. But equally as important is that uh, I've been able to uh, develop relationships with many of the world's leading spiritual leaders, uh, including Amma, the Hugging Saint, uh, including Desmond Tutu, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru, and a, uh, uh, a number of others. That uh, I don't even know what to say to that. That's amazing. Um, I well, thank you for writing into the magic shop. I I know that the entire world is blessed because you lost your magic thumb uh, that day. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, it's funny because <laughs> you know uh, I probably get two or three hundred emails a day from people who've read the book, been moved by the book, etc. But uh, a number of them have either sent me. Uh, bags of uh, uh, Chips Ahoy cookies or plastic thumbs. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's been sort of funny. Well, I, I know it, it, it's got to be so amazing. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that you sleep very good at night uh, for all the experience you've had and the things you've done and the change you've made. Well, look, uh, I appreciate that I'm extraordinarily blessed and um, that um, at least in most cases, things have worked out uh, well for me. You know, I don't want to imply that you read my book and suddenly your life is perfect and, you know, you're in control of everything because that's not true at all. But what the book does do is it gives you a set of tools that do allow you to uh, develop some degree of agency and, and have some insight into those things that often hold each of us back from being our best selves and a set of tools and practices that um, allow you to become your best self. But none of us are perfect. Uh, we all have setbacks. And while on the one hand, of course, people love listing all the positive things, you know, there are a number of things that I would have liked to have done or done better um, that just haven't happened. And it's not because the intention wasn't there. 
uh, it's just sometimes uh, it's not the right timing, or there are some other reasons that have not allowed that to happen. But as anyone uh, who has been successful uh, or seemingly successful overnight, uh, people forget the thousand failures or efforts they've made that did not manifest with success. Because people, of course, uh, have a tendency to only look at the good stuff and not necessarily see uh, the other struggles you've had. Now, on that note, um, many people have asked me to write another book, or when, when is the next book coming out? And actually, uh, I've uh, just finished that. <clears throat> awesome. Yeah, so uh, that book is tentatively titled um, uh, Out of the Magic Shop, The Power of Intention. And uh, what we're doing now is, so the rough draft is done. Now we're creating a, um, what's the word, a, um, a packet to send to the initial publisher to see if they're interested in publishing it. And if not, then it will go to auction. And I'm fairly confident that a publisher will pick it up. So. I'm fairly confident that you are correct. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, you may or may not know uh, two things. One is most books that are published, there typically is no advance or very limited, especially for a first time author. And then the other thing is that the average book um, number of books that are published for that first round, uh, believe it or not, on average, are only about 2,500. Wow. Believe it or not, all the books that are published, uh, 90 some percent, I think it's 94% of profits in the publishing industry are made on 6% of the books. Wow, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, it's a, very <laughs> it's a very strange business model. But uh, that being said, um, the reason I bring that up is that actually uh, I was given uh, a multi six-figure advance for my book. Uh, and they published, I think, uh, 50 or 100,000 copies up front uh, because obviously they felt it was going to be a popular book. So, And they knew what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're publishing 94% failures, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but I would tell you, of course, this is analogous to the venture capital world, right? 90-some right. uh, percent of all their investments fail. Uh, now, what... I think is interesting is if you simply put on a dartboard all the various uh, projects that have come to you and simply threw a dart uh, or multiple darts, I'm not sure if the results would be any different than the results that they actually have. Uh, now that is biased because there are uh, companies that clearly are going to have an impact and a number of sort of the big name BC firms, you know, get access to those, but that's because they have a history, right, of that. And that's why they go there. But I certainly think for the average uh, VC firm, you could just throw darts and come up with something. Yeah, but your entire story from 1968 to even how this book was published, like that guy was stalking you for a reason. Uh, that is true. <laughs> Actually, I just got a, a text from him a little bit earlier today, talking about uh, getting the book to the publisher, or the outline, if you will. Well, I, uh, I look forward to, to that, the release of that book after someone picks it up, and I know they will. Um, Dr. Doty, this, is, this has been wonderful. I really do appreciate you sharing your time with me. Um, this has been fantastic. 
ladies and gentlemen, if you're at home, do yourself a favor, get into the magic shop. It is, it will, you cannot read that book and not want to, to be a better person or to be your best self. Might not all be roses, but you can be your best self. Exactly. And uh, uh, I think there are a couple points, there are three points to emphasize. Uh, one is uh, you can check out our website at ccare.stanford.edu. Uh, and there are also a number of programs as well as actually on YouTube, a number of videos from our conversations on compassion, which I think a lot of people would appreciate. Uh, two is um, everyone uh, has the ability to improve the life of one person every day. And you know, a lot of people sit there and they say, well, I don't have the time, I don't have the resources, I don't know people. But sometimes it's simply a smile. And when you give to others, when you're of service to others, uh, again, as I was saying earlier, it not only helps them, but it helps you. And uh, we all have the time uh, to do that. And the third thing is, what was the third thing? I can't remember it at the moment. I'm sure as soon as we finish, I'll remember it. But, the first uh, two were pretty strong. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, there was a third one. Where did it go? I, I, uh, well, I'm sure it'll come to me at some point. Um, well, listen, thank you for having me. And uh, if any of your uh, listeners um, want to reach out, uh, you can drop me an email at jrdoty at stanford.edu. Now, I always say that, and sometimes I get a lot of email. But, you know, the reality is some people are really suffering. And in that context, uh, I try as best as I can to uh, at least answer in some way to those individuals. Because, you know, when you're hurting, when you're in pain, uh, when you're suffering, just having someone uh, acknowledge you uh, oftentimes can be life-saving. Wow. That must, that's gotta be the third thing. That's amazing. <laughs> I guess it is Dave. Thank you so much uh, for sure. your, your care and compassion, Dr. Doty. Okay. My friend, take care of yourself. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend.